0: From 1979 to today.
1: This is episode 2.30, The Gambler, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and I have a lot of questions about Side 2's government. I demand that Sunrise Studios give the people what they crave, a Universal Century Civics lecture.
0: And I'm Nina, new to Zeta, and frankly, bored of Moir's lovey-dovey shtick. Jared. It's all that her character has going for her right now. What is her characteristic in love with Jared?
1: Smooching noises.
0: Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 270 patrons. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest patrons, Edward B, Texland, and Waiting for Double Zero. I'm so sorry, Waiting for Double Zero. I don't know how many years away that is, but I assume it's some. If you'd like to support Mobile Suit Breakdown and get access to our patron discord bonus content and more, you can do so at GundamPodcast.com Patreon. We also have a special thank you this week to Megan D for getting us a couple of books from our wish list. If you're looking for other ways to support the podcast, we have an Amazon wish list full of research materials, magazines, books, tea, <laughs> recording equipment, uh, and other things that we need to keep MSB humming along. You can find that link at gundampodcast.com at the bottom of the page.
1: This week we are covering Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 29, Crisis at Side 2. After the recap and our talk back, in lieu of research this week we have a consultation with neuropsychologist Dr. Shar of Dr. Charmander Gaming to check in on the condition of the original sad boy of space, Amuro Ray.
0: But first, let's tune in to the Titans News Network.
1: One small difference...
0: Fire the solar system is Solomon! General, the solar system... It's not... It's... It's... It's not working!
1: ...can change everything. The Gundam! It's been destroyed by Akegan! What about Amuro? We've lost his signal! God help us all! In a world ruled by Zeon. My father told me what it was like
0: before the war. He said every Earthnoid used to be free. I pledge allegiance to the Zabi family and to the principality which it rules.
2: One Earth sphere under one family. Hail, Hail Zeon! Hail Zeon! Hail, Hail Zeon!
1: A new generation of heroes will rise.
2: You're quitting the academy, Jaren? But becoming the leader of the Chimera Corps is all you have
1: ever wanted! You know the ambitions of a couple of Earthnoids like us don't amount to much these days. From among the downtrodden Earthnoids. Are you sure about this, Amaro? Teaming up with M. Dekun again after all these years. Yes, sir, Captain Basque. You said yourself that he's the best person to lead the Resistance with us. Change the fate. Hey, what's on the back of that truck? Is that a new mobile suit? Of humanity.
0: It's a gun.
1: Coming soon from the director of the RX Files, Zaku Dark Thirty, and Friday Night Brights. It's a Gundam! Mark II! The producers of The Luos, Aliases, Twin Colonies, and Veronica on Mars. Won't somebody please think of the children? And the network that brought you Will You Be Able to Survive her? Seventeen and Enlisted, Spacenoid Ninja Warrior, The West Wingbinder, and Competition of Cockpits. Yes, Supreme Commander. Lady Castillo has confirmed it. These rebels are calling themselves the Titans. The Man in the Demon-Faced Castle. Featuring Aubrey Byrne as Mineva Laozabi. And now the recap for Crisis at Side 2.
0: Ayug has finally discovered the reason for the Titan's recent maneuvering. They plan to crush a Side-2 colony to intimidate Ayug and the Spacenoids. What's worse, the Argama intercepts a laser transmission, revealing the Alexandria recently picked up a load of G3 poison gas, possibly for use on a colony. Finally in a position of responsibility, Jared leads the mission briefing aboard the Alexandria. When Moar points out that poison gas is banned by treaty, Garrett counters that if the destruction of one colony causes Ayug and the Spacenoids to surrender, it will save dozens of colonies from being destroyed by ongoing war. And besides, once the Titans took control of the Federation, the old treaties became meaningless. The room full of pilots seemed to agree they need to end the war as quickly as possible. Their mission will also be a distraction, allowing Grips to prepare for an attack on Grenada. Moar worries that this mission, whether they fail or succeed, will be a hard one for Jared to live with. But Jared, thinking of Lila and Kakrakhan, is undeterred, and tells her that he is satisfying the grudges of those killed in battle. In the control room for all of Side 2, the mayor is in a panic. There are 50 colonies to defend, and Ayug is only sending two warships? If gas is released in one of the colonies, as many as 20 million people could die. When the Alexandria arrives with no Aug ships in sight, the mayor decides to contact the Titans and surrender side two. The radio operator balks and is shot in the shoulder by the mayor's bodyguard. The Alexandria's own operator receives the signal and knows it's likely to be a surrender, yet Captain Gadi tells him to ignore it, that the Minovsky particle density is too high and they have not received any message. This mission is meant to show all of the colonies, across all of the sides, all of the Spacenoids and Ayug, the consequences of defying the Titans. They must demonstrate just how far the Titans are willing to go. Regardless of attempts at contact, Gadi is determined to destroy a colony. Launching the moment they are in range, the Zeta and the Methus take off after the Titans' suits. Soon after, Emma joins them, focusing her attention on the team affixing the gas canister to the outside of the colony. Before long, Camille and Jared are in a duel. Camille marvels at the strength of his opponent, and Jared, earlier mask of calm slipping, yells furiously that if it weren't for Camille, he wouldn't have to lead such a disgraceful operation. With a clear, precise shot, Katz is able to destroy the gas canister before the gas can be released into the colony. Jared and Camille are chasing each other through a nearby, unfinished colony, when Moar manages to grab hold of the Zeta with her Gabsley's claws. An explosion at such close range would likely kill them both, but she is determined to protect Jared and destroy the Zeta, only letting go when Katz flies in, just in the nick of time. The operation stymied, the Titans return to the Alexandria and the Ayug pilots to their own ships. Bright, Apolly and Camille go to meet the mayor of side two. And while they are on their way, the mayor offers his wounded radio operator a bribe not to tell Bright about the attempted surrender. Despite the secrecy, the Argama detected the attempted contact, and Bright confronts the mayor about it. In turn, the mayor blames it on an unnamed traitor, and pleads with Bright to be merciful. In the cage-like atmosphere of the colony, with the threat of the gas, is it any surprise that someone would panic? Very understanding, Bright assures him they don't need to pursue it any further, but they should all remember. Any temporary peace bought by allying with the Titans would have long-term consequences for all Spacenoids.
1: It's worth noting here, after last episode, I went and looked at who the scriptwriters were for these episodes. The previous episode was uh, written by a male scriptwriter, this episode written by a woman.
0: Make of that what we will.
1: Indeed. But you were going to talk about war crimes.
0: No, before we talk about war crimes, I wanted to talk a little bit about the scene with Fa and the kids. This scene is reminiscent of two different scenes from First Gundam. Uh, There's a scene where Kika (laughs) floods one of the rooms (laughs) and Amaro rushes in to help her. And Kika, I think, is just wearing her underwear. Uh, And he rushes in and there's laundry hanging up. And he's embarrassed because he catches his face on a bra. And Mirai is wondering what's happening. And she rushes out (laughs) topless because she was in the bath. And then Amaro's there. Anyway, it's silly and embarrassing, but gives us... A little sort of slice of life on the ship and then there's another scene later where we have fra with kika cats and let all in one of the bathing rooms and she's like making sure they all get their baths we talked about these scenes quite a bit but I do want to just like touch on a couple of things about them for anybody who didn't listen to our first season uh, communal bathing, especially parents and their children, is super common in Japan. Maybe less so now, but for a long time, people didn't have bathing facilities in their homes. You went to public bathhouses and children would go with their parents. This kind of scene with like a parent figure and children figures bathing shows up in Japanese media relatively frequently, and there's specific emotions it's meant to evoke. It's meant to make you think nostalgic, nurturing parent-child relationship thoughts and feelings. When we see Fa here fussing over the kids who have clearly just gotten out of the bath, that's meant to be a sweet, nostalgic kind of image.
1: I wonder if there's anything to the juxtaposition of Fa mothering the kids' sweet, nostalgic family bathing scene, and just prior to that, Quattro, their ostensible father leaving to go off on a business trip.
0: I do find it very interesting that Quattro adopts these kids.
1: And he says he feels an obligation to take care of somebody.
0: But we have yet to see him do any of their caretaking. We've seen Recoa look after them and we've seen Fa look after them. <laughs> <laughs> well, we we always sort of knew that he was
1: full of baloney. Well, and even in that one scene with him and Bright with the two kids, when he's handing over the letter from Bright's family. Quattro is just sort of standing there watching Bright interacting with Shinta and Coom.
0: We finally get their names. <laughs> the other couple of things that I noticed about the bathing scene is we get a contrast between Amro and Camille here. <laughs> when it was Amro, there was a lot of like embarrassment and shyness. With Camille He's very obviously checking Fa out the whole time, like, oh, hello there, Fa. <laughs>
1: hi Hi. You look good when you're naked
0: <laughs> or in a robe or whatever. <laughs> yeah, there's this sense that Camille is a little less serious. <laughs> we also get a very sort of poignant, a little bit sad reminder of Camille's lost childhood because it starts with the paper plane coming down the hallway. and he's coming to scold Fa for being late. You know, but he catches this paper plane and he picks it up and he smiles to himself. And then he sees one of the kids and he tosses the plane back and it feels so sad, but sweet sad.
1: You yeah, know. Uh, it also made me think of four because the first interaction we saw with four involved her picking up a model plane. And we know they talked about how much the two of them both love flying.
0: I confess, I did not really think of four. I just thought like, ah, lost childhood. Uh, But it could totally be that as well.
1: Well, that was something that he and four had in common and bonded over was their shared sense of a lost childhood. His because his childhood was stolen from him by the neglect and abuse of his parents. Hers because her childhood was stolen from her by the new type lab. And literally, she has no memories of her childhood.
0: And finally, we have this funny dynamic of Camille being attracted to a, a mother figure, but for a change, someone who's not mothering him. <laughs> but he watches Fa with these kids and you can tell he likes that. He likes seeing her scold them and chivvy them along and order them around. And he likes seeing her do this. He likes seeing her in this role.
1: And there's no sense of jealousy which you might expect from somebody who clearly has a thing about being mothered themselves. There's no sense from Camille, like, how dare you mother those children? You should be <laughs> paying attention to me. It's nice. Weirdly, this scene tells you a lot about Camille's character. And it's all pretty charming, endearing stuff.
0: Well, and, the, and the fact that he does not see her skill at being a mom in this sense as being counter to her being a good pilot. As a matter of fact, he thinks the confidence that she's showing and her ability to be like stern and forceful as beneficial to her being a pilot. When he compliments her, she's very quick to be like, "Does that mean you don't think I'm a good pilot, or does yeah. that mean you you think I shouldn't be a pilot?" And he's like, "No, no."
1: <laughs> Mothering and piloting are not opposites. Yeah, this scene when you just describe it to somebody in the abstract of you know the teenage boy who is kind of lecherously peeping on the teenage girl like it could very easily be gross it could say a lot of bad things about camille this could easily have been a completely different scene in terms of its emotional effect on us mm-hmm. i think the key to it is we know already that fa really does want camille to look at her this way
0: right well and i i think i don't know if i'm reading too much into this i I read a lot of her irritation in this scene as her just like enjoying fighting with Camille. Yeah. Not as not as her being angry or skeeved out, but like, this is our this is our thing that we do. We always kind of fight. And so
1: Right. This is actually recreation for them. Earlier, maybe it wasn't. Earlier the emotions were too fraught, the nerves too raw, but now they are actually having fun with this.
0: Yeah. I don't necessarily think Foss behavior is super healthy, necessarily, but I I don't think that she's actually bothered by Camille's attention.
1: And for once, I don't think he's bothered by her pugnacious response.
0: <laughs> anyway, I enjoyed that scene. I thought it was nice.
1: Agreed. I'm tempted to call her a tsundere, but there's no dere dere. It's all tsun
0: <laughs> You should explain what that is.
1: Tsundere is a character type in uh, Japanese media. It's a portmanteau of two onomatopoeia. Sunsun, which is like the sound of two pieces of iron scraping against each other, or two like rams mashing their horns together. Sunsun is like fighting. And then dere dere is like, ooh, lovey dovey, like, let me be so sweet and kind and, and cloyingly so. And so tsundere is to alternate between uh, pugnacious fighting and uh,
0: sweet affectionate yeah. fa never quite gets de-de-de-de. she can be affectionate Chink meal can be kind to each other but she's never all that like sweet or demonstrative and with that we move on to the titans and side two
1: and this is where things get really interesting in this episode
0: if by interesting, you mean sad and historical.
1: <laughs> it's just all pretty bad from this point on. Oh, joy. <laughs> no, I mean in this episode.
0: Oh, okay. I yeah. thought you meant for the rest of Zeta. No. I was like, oh, yay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so Jared has gotten what he wanted. He's been promoted. He's in charge of the mobile suit pilots for this mission. And what a mission it is. They're going to go use lethal gas to eradicate a civilian colony.
0: Their justification for this is not unlike some of the justifications that were used with the atomic bomb, which is we need the war to end now. And the sooner the war ends, the fewer people will ultimately die. Therefore, our use of this horrible weapon is, in fact, justified and acceptable.
1: And those were the justifications, certainly, around using the atomic bomb. But those same justifications were used for practically every expansion of mass destructive warfighting in history, really. (laughs) Uh, You can find almost identical justifications for deploying poison gas in combat. You can find the same justifications for strategic bombing, even using conventional bombs or firebombs. The idea that warfare is a no-holds-barred, no-rules arena that slaughter is the name of the game. And the quicker you can completely eradicate your enemy, the sooner the war will be over and the less destruction will ultimately be necessary.
0: We hear the same justification at the beginning of First Gundam, that you know maybe if we make a weapon big enough, powerful enough, then we won't have to go to war at all.
1: And in First Gundam, the show really made no bones about its feelings on that topic, by having Temre say that because of the strength of the Gundam, the war would end soon and kids like his son would never be forced into combat. And in the very same episode, the Gundam itself forces his son into combat. So it's pretty clear the show in First Gundam had no patience for that whatsoever. And in Zeta, it's the same because otherwise they wouldn't have had Jared say it. Having Jared say something is a pretty good way to know that the show disagrees with it.
0: Even thinking back on other similar moments... You know, they've used gas on colonies before, and yet here they are about to do it again. The colony drop supposedly was so horrific that humanity, you know, decided to never do it again, and yet Jamaican was going to drop a colony on the moon. None of this is new, and none of it ever actually served the purpose of stopping everything.
1: Yeah, all of these escalations never managed to successfully de-escalate the conflict.
0: And, frankly... The Titans undercut themselves immediately when they say, ah, so our goal is to end things as quickly as possible, because if we wipe out a colony, then all the other colonies will fall into line. Oh, but also this is a distraction, so Grips can attack Granada.
1: Right. And when Side 2 offers to surrender, we aren't going to listen to them, because we've decided to wipe out this colony, we've put all of our eggs in the poison gas attack basket, And even though we would have achieved our strategic objectives faster and with practically no loss of life, nonetheless, we're going to go ahead with it because we've committed to it now.
0: Well, because conceptually, the idea that they've sold to themselves is that it doesn't work if they don't kill millions of people. That the point is to kill a bunch of people, not to get a colony to surrender.
1: Except that we know that they know that even once they subdue side two, they're still going to have to invade Granada that Psy-2 is a staging ground for the invasion of Granada. And so on some level, they know even killing the 10 to 20 million people on that colony is not going to be enough. It won't intimidate all of Ayug into surrendering.
0: And for once, weirdly, because even stopped clocks are right on occasion, uh, we're with Yazan, <laughs> who refused to participate in the mission. Because we know Yazan is, on some level, deeply old-fashioned and probably finds this whole idea abhorrent on a, like, personal honor level. Hmm. I imagine.
1: Yeah, Yazan would much prefer to kill all of those people himself.
0: Yeah, the idea of using gas, I'm not saying he's against massive loss of life, but the idea of using gas on the colony would be pretty abhorrent to him.
1: That makes sense. As you said, stopped clocks, we might find Yazan grotesque, but we can agree on this. There's a little bit of barracks room lawyering here when somebody makes the point that poison gas, I think Moar, makes the point that poison gas is against international treaty. Mm -hmm. And they basically say, well, now that the Titans have taken over the Federation, all those international treaties are null and void. Which is one angle you could take with this, and that's a real-world bit of legal justification. When a government changes completely, say by revolution uh, or by coup, it's not uncommon for the new government to repudiate some existing international agreements. It tends to be frowned upon by the international community, naturally, but it does happen and it is, from a certain perspective, legally valid. The other angle they could have gone with is that this was an agreement between the Federation and the Principality of Zeon. We're here talking about the Antarctic Treaty, which bans nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons, and which we had some additional research on back in Season 1. They could have said, now that the Principality of Zeon doesn't exist anymore, this bilateral treaty between the Federation and the Principality is null and void.
0: Moira is also the one who confronts Jared about the fact that even if they succeed, perhaps especially if they succeed, this is going to be a hard one to live with. And he brings up his various Kataki (laughs) situations. (laughs) The
1: vengeance.
0: The vengeance. The
1: grudges of his departed comrades that he is trying to vindicate.
0: Yes, that part of his justification to himself is that he is getting revenge for Lila and for Kakrakon. Although we know from when Jared faces off with Camille that deep down, Jared hates this mission. He says to Camille, if it weren't for you, I wouldn't have to do this disgraceful operation.
1: How convenient for him that it's Camille's fault.
0: Well, in the same way that Camille frequently yells at people that if they didn't come out into space in mobile suits, he wouldn't have to kill them. It appears to be a common problem (laughs) among mobile suit pilots. Why do you make me kill you? Uh...
1: This is the danger of trying to change things by working within the system. From the very beginning, Jared has said he doesn't like the way things are going in the Titans. He doesn't like the way the world is. He wants to change it. He wants to change his own circumstances. And he's going to do that by rising as high within the Titans as he can. He's going to rise above Jamaican and Basque and all of these other people. And he's going to make things better. But in order to rise within the Titans, in order to rise within this broken, grotesquely abusive, violent hierarchy, the only way to do it is to become complicit in it, to sell his soul for advancement. In the same way that for Camille, the only way to fight the Titans, an organization that he hated and that was responsible for monstrous injustices, was to join Ayug, an organization that is somewhat better in some ways. But is ultimately just another faction within the Federation military vying for power.
0: With a lot of the same abusive practices and abusive power structures that exist throughout.
1: It was surprising seeing Moar's aggression in this episode.
0: It was, wasn't it? We don't typically see Moar lose her cool, but she gets a chance to take out Camille, and it would have destroyed her too, we think. And she's about to take it when Katz rolls up and and saves Camille.
1: It feels a little bit like the writers have lost the thread of Moar's character.
0: It feels very odd for her to be the one with self-destructive aggression and for Jared to be the one telling her, like, sometimes you have to let an opportunity pass. <laughs> like,
1: yeah. That suggests a certain amount of growth on Jared's part, but it's weird that he's saying that to Moar. When we first met her, she had kind of a cool, calm, collected, and also suspicious character about her. The main thing we saw from her was these interactions with Soroka, where she was very suspicious of what he was up to, what his alternative plans were, what his ulterior motives were.
0: I mean, the only possible explanation for her change of behavior is that she's so in love with Jared... And she knows that this guy is always trying to kill Jared. And so, <laughs> and she says as much during the fight, she says, I won't let Jared die. Like that's part of why she's willing to put herself in this dangerous situation mm-hmm. to fight Camille.
1: I guess that's consistent with her role in the Rendezvous with Shaw episode where she was piloting the battery hijack but.
0: It still feels off.
1: Yeah. And she seemed so passive in that episode to then become so aggressive in this one. I'm not sure what's going on there.
0: And so often her role is to be the like arm held out to stop Jared from flying off the handle. Jared. Jared. That for that role to reverse feels strange and kind of abrupt.
1: It would feel less abrupt if, coming into this, we didn't know she was already a veteran. Because it's not uncommon for characters when they first start fighting to go through a period of extreme aggression. We saw that with Camille. We saw that with Amaro, But for that to happen to Moar, who from the moment we saw her was already an experienced pilot, already keeping pace with Jared and Sirocco in that first scene where they were testing out the gab plays. I suppose she feels a little bit like cats. Mm-hmm. Something has happened. Something has changed. But without any indication of how that happened or why. Now, I think the most interesting part of this episode actually happens in the Side 2 control room.
0: Agreed.
1: Where the mayor is overseeing Side 2's response to this threat from the Titans. To give you a sense for the lay of the land when this episode opens, it's clear that Side 2 has sided with Ayug. They are being protected by an Ayug garrison ship, which is a pretty inadequate defense for a side of 50 colonies.
0: Yeah, I was appalled by how little of an independent defense force they have she would think a group of that many colonies would have something akin to a police force or a, a branch of the army or something
1: yeah and maybe they do for internal colony things but they don't have a fleet and this really drives home how small how minuscule the federation forces are in zeta You don't get this sense often because we are mostly focused on soldiers. And so most of the characters we see are soldiers. We spend most of our time with them. But an entire side with one single Salamis Kai cruiser to defend it and six mobile suits. That's ludicrous.
0: We also uh, know that they have some kind of independent uh, batteries or firing power. Yeah, the colonies
1: themselves are armed in some way.
0: Because one of them mentions it. I found it rather telling uh, vis-a-vis the mayor's personality that when one of his subordinates says, oh, should I fire on the gas canister? The mayor says, no, you'll destroy the colony. But we see cats fire on the gas canister with no harm done to the colony.
1: Well, I presume the colonies are firing much heavier ordnance over a much longer distance. And the chances of them being able to hit the gas cylinder and not rupture the colony are much smaller. When Katz gets up close and personal.
0: Right. I just meant in terms of the mayor's
1: risk-averseness. <laughs> mm-hmm. Definitely. I mean, trolley problem, right? He would rather do nothing and have the colony exterminated by the Titans than prevent the Titans from destroying the colony, but maybe destroy the colony himself. That would probably affect his chances at re-election. But let's actually talk for a second about this mayor. Um He makes a comment about how the titans with their gas canister could kill between 10 and 20 million. So I'm going to assume that 10 and 20 million is the population of one colony. We know there are 50 colonies inside two. He says that at one point. So if you assume an average of uh, 15 million people in each colony, 50 colonies, that's 750 million people inside two under the uh, rule of this mayor, which means this isn't a mayor who oversees a population as large as that of the U.S., Indonesia, and Russia put together.
0: Wow. I was going to ask if you had looked up country comparisons. Oh, I did. Yeah, I mean, even on the small end, even if each of them is just 10 million.
1: Yeah, that would just be the U.S. plus Indonesia.
0: So mayor is maybe not the right (laughs) word. Well, and to be fair, I assume that the titans picked one of the more populous colonies there may be quite a few that are considerably smaller but it's still a vast number of people for one person to be overseeing and governing i mean 10 million people is bigger than new york city and that's in one of the 50 so yeah and he is furious that only two Ayug ships are coming to take care of this problem
1: (laughs) even though they face only one titans ship Again, all of this goes to show you how small this conflict is in the grand scale of the world of Zeta Gundam. Think about that scene. You know, we have a dozen mobile suits fighting. We have three ships, four if you count the one that the Alexandria took out at the very beginning of the battle. But then you get that pan across the interior of Colony 25, the one that has the gas canister attached to it. And you see this horde of people trying to evacuate. Mm -hmm. In First Gundam, the war took over everything. The war was everywhere. Everything was caught up in it. The cities were destroyed. All the people were enlisted. The closest thing we saw to a functioning city on Earth was Belfast, and Belfast was in ruins. The people there were principally engaged in picking through the ruins. It was all subsistence living in the shadow of the war. Here, the war is this small thing. The consequences of it are enormous, but very few people are involved in this war.
0: That hits home even harder in the ending narration when they point out the public is largely ignorant of what has just happened. An evacuation may have been ordered, but they don't know why. Most of them, anyway, uh, do not know what just went down. Again, I suppose reflecting changes in the way war has been fought since World War II, that we went from this sort of total war that engulfs everyone and everything to conflicts that are largely removed from the populations involved in them.
1: And think how especially true that is for Japan and the Japanese people. World War II was fought in their homeland. Even if the home islands were never invaded, they were bombed. The war came home. But ever since then, the war has been far away. Wars have been fought in other countries by other people, by other countries. And the Japanese people might be invested, they might pick sides, they might support one faction or the other, but they haven't been involved. Except, of course, they have been. (laughs) Non-involvement is a myth. Japan has been threatened. Japan has provided material for wars, has provided bases for the U.S. soldiers in Vietnam. And Much to the surprise and displeasure of many Japanese people, at various points, the U.S. has staged either nuclear-powered ships or even nuclear weapons in Japanese harbors and at bases on Japanese soil. It's hard not to see echoes of that in Zeta. The
0: hardest part of all this for me was the amount of sympathy I felt for the mayor, which is uncomfortable. But it's not hard to imagine how... The sudden realization that your own side may not be able to protect you would make you decide, you know what? Better to live to fight another day. Yeah. He, of course, then ruins it by being really gross and telling that guy, like, oh, if you just keep your mouth shut, basically offering a bribe.
1: I mean, his whole goal throughout this episode is first to keep his people safe, but also to keep them unaware which he frames in terms of safety. He says you wouldn't want to cause a panic by telling the people what happened. And maybe he's right, as uncomfortable as that is to acknowledge. I think we have to look at him in contrast to the last time that we saw a civilian city threatened by a titan weapon of mass destruction and how its leaders acted. Because when Jamaican was trying to drop that colony on Granada, we got to see Wong Lee with, I think, the mayor of Granada. Yeah. And as the two of them discussed how to react to this situation, we saw a very different approach.
0: The mayor of Granada wanted to evacuate the city.
1: He wanted to do something.
0: And Wong Lee basically said, if that if that colony hits us, it won't matter.
1: We have to stay the course. We have to put our faith in aug surrendering is as bad as dying. And it's clear that the mayor of side two does not think that he thinks that surrendering is much preferred to dying. He is not an AU hardliner, but it's not clear that the show thinks that that's wrong.
0: His characterization seems to indicate that we're supposed to find him kind of scummy, but honestly, what was the colony going to do? ...against the Titans. Yeah. Against this gas attack. They have few to no options. And so... ...if your choice is... ...surrender... ...and hopefully... ...figure something out afterwards... ...or... ...let everybody die... ...surrender starts to look pretty good. How is he to know the Titans had decided... ...already... ...that oh no... ...everybody at this colony has to die...
1: And he gets one of the most poignant lines of the episode toward the end when he's talking to Bright and he says, you know, you have to remember, it's like we're all confined inside a cage here. This is a theme that Gundam has come back to occasionally. Life in space is so fragile. It's so hard to make space livable and so easy to destroy one of these colonies. Uh, we do have to acknowledge Dangar. dangar the best part about dangar is earlier in the episode they write it danger (laughs) it's written correctly the first time that canister shows up on screen but later when it shows up again and when they actually have the text like animate and rotate and glow and come into the center of the screen dangar dangar We are joined once again by Dr. Shar of Dr. Charmander Gaming, who has generously agreed to come back on the program and do a checkup on Amaro. If you remember from season one, Dr. Shar helped us to analyze Amaro's mental state after his uh, very emotional reunion with his father. And she also helped us work with Camille a little bit early on in season two. Now that Amaro has returned to the show...
0: As an adult...
1: Indeed, but not yet one with a fully formed brain, because he is still only 24. Dr. Shar has agreed to come back and talk to us about how Amaro has developed. Or not. (laughs) Tell us how you really feel, Doctor.
2: (laughs) Good morning, everyone.
1: It is such a pleasure to have you back.
2: It's nice to be back.
1: Is it? Because the things you've said about these characters...
2: You send me such interesting referrals. <laughs> they wouldn't be friends with me in real life.
1: So, we've selected for Dr. Shar a span of four episodes from Amuro's reintroduction through to Quattro's departure into space.
2: Zeta 13 through 16.
1: This also covers the beginning of Amuro's relationship with Beltorchka, about which I believe you have something to say.
2: Wait, this is only the beginning?
1: I mean, this is his first meeting with Beltorchka. This is her first introduction into the show.
2: How long is she in the show with him?
1: Not very. You know Barry. I can't spoil anything for ah, you. Ah,
2: no! <laughs> well, yes, a number of things did happen. We did see the return of several people. Several people became insta-dads, and people fought not in space with, without harnesses or protective gear, which <laughs> hurts me on a personal level. Um, but yes... Where shall we start?
1: Well, let's start at the beginning with Amro and his life before it is once again interrupted by yet another war. He's living in a fancy mansion out in Colorado uh, and some of his old friends from the war come and visit him. He lives alone along with his servants.
2: Okay. So he's been paranoid of his servants for a long time, it seems like.
1: Is it paranoia if he's right?
2: That's the problem. <laughs> that's the problem I had. So I feel like um, he was paranoid for a while without any proof because it sounds like um, they've just been watching him, but he's been doing whatever for a while in that mansion. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Uh, we don't know how long he's been living there, but some years now, it seems like.
2: At least four, because that's what someone says. He's mm-hmm. not touched a Gundam. Um, if he came to me with just like my maids watching me, I'd be like, sure. Delusion number one. And then take a step back when he's like, by the way, I hijacked a plane because they were watching me. And <laughs> like, OK, well, cool. Only not.
1: But I know they were watching me because when I tried to hijack that plane, there was an intelligence <laughs> officer there.
2: I actually had this happen. Someone did have a history of working in a situation where people were watching them and people thought they were paranoid and it was validated much later so yeah good job they're just reinforcing his incredibly avoidant behaviors i imagine this boy has not known a day of peace anytime he's in his own home probably doesn't feel safe there i can tell from his jacket that he's been in the
0: army yes what it seems like is after the war he was such a hero and also everyone was so worried about what he might do politically that he's kind of half a hostage <laughs> like yeah the the government sort of said okay well you work for us now and you're going to become like a flight instructor at our school hmm. and oh we're going to give you this great place to live and a staff but it's really a way for them to keep tabs on him and make sure he's not doing anything disruptive
2: it sounds like they haven't acted out on
0: watching him until this moment, right? It seems that they haven't exercised it. They haven't had to exert control, but he knows that it's there. It's prevented him from doing certain things because he knows he's being watched and he would be found out immediately and that these are things they would not want him to do.
2: Well, all right. Well, they were semi-successful until this episode, until his friends motivated him. Like the heart of the cards or something. I don't know.
1: Well, and specifically this young kid, Katz, who I assume you recognize was one of the tiny orphans running around the white base. Oh, yeah. In First Condemn.
2: Ah, these children and their spunk. Clearly that has not been beaten out of them yet. I bet Amuro notices that. That's probably why he doesn't stop him from berating him. So we have these two people, we had Amaro and Camille who kind of just like accidentally get involved in whatever war is going on. Like Camille's like, I hijacked a car and now I'm in the war. And mm-hmm. Amaro was like, I hijacked a Gundam and now I'm in the war. And now he's going to like, this is the only way I know to get people in wars. Let's hijack a thing together. I'm your mentor now. <laughs> No, it was funny because so it doubles back to the training role. What happens a lot in structured regimes is that, you know, they like these broken people. They like these people who don't have role models because people in that situation are just so bent on not having the same experience happen to other people. So they try and become someone else's role model.
1: But you mm. have all
2: of these pretty emotionally and resourcefully bankrupt people who are like, I'm never going to do the same thing again, but it was the only thing that was ever shown to me, so I end up doing the same thing again, like hijacking a plane.
1: Mm -hmm. So you're saying that it's a natural fit for Amaro to go into a training role in the army Mm
2: -hmm. because
1: he has this powerful desire to make sure that they don't make the same mistakes?
2: Yes and no. There's like general training for people you know like a a class or so and i think that's fine but taking on an individual like cats and personally mentoring them in the way that you know it's gone beyond concepts it's gone beyond skill of piloting and just like you should personally do this bad thing
1: here's literally my gun
2: gun. (laughs) here's my gun ah here's a nice phallic reference
1: hold on explain that
2: they're incredibly phallic. And I was trying to figure out, I was like, was there like a time when it was used? Then you said it was a gunfight. And I was like, ah, so like a really abstract measuring contest. Here's the I used to measure against Char. I bet you'll do well against him.
1: Well, and this was right before they got into a sword fight.
2: <laughs> yes.
1: Both uh, stabbed each other. <laughs> I give and up. Right after, right after stabbing each other, uh, their swords both broke, and because they were in zero zero gravity, they collided in kind of an embrace, and their foreheads conked together, and they had a like powerful psychic communion moment.
0: Oh my god! Oh yeah, it's exactly as homoerotic as it sounds. I can't, I can't do this.
2: What? <laughs> i don't have citations for this oh <laughs> uh, wow and
1: and that's the gun he gave cats
2: do they still want to kill each other <laughs> maybe i can't get over this what fighting with swords in space wait you said that's where like shar is hit on the forehead he has a scar yeah.
1: yep Amara stabs him in the forehead. He's wearing a spacesuit at the time. So the blade goes through the helmet of the spacesuit and then Uh, it breaks and it scars Char's forehead.
2: Why do I even try? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay, enough of that. Yes, there's a lot of homoerotic and phallic symbols and it's getting passed down intergenerationally. I don't know what Char has given Camille.
1: A bad attitude.
0: (laughs) But to go back to the mentor relationship, because you were talking about aspects of it, like the providing sort of instruction and knowledge is fine. Yeah. But uh, where it kind of becomes problematic is when it becomes more personal. Yeah. What is the problem with AMRO? trying to develop this personal mentoring relationship.
2: Yeah, I was talking about the training role because that's pretty textbook and it's pretty like black and white. Either you will pilot well or you will crash and burn. Mm-hmm. With the personal relationship, we have the grayness of morality. Like he's not taking into account Katz's emotions or even fostering Katz's own attitudes or independent thinking about whether or not he shouldn't join the war. It's just get in this cargo plane and hijack with me. So in that sense, training, you have objective skill, personality, as I've mentioned before,
0: Amuro seems pretty emotionally bankrupt. Hmm. So when Amuro hijacks that plane with Katz, the day or two before, Katz has just been telling him how much Katz wants to go join this fight. When Amaro does this with cats, he's facilitating that. He's facilitating a desire that Katz has expressed very strongly. hmm But he's also, you know, helping a 15-year-old, 14-year-old do something incredibly reckless and dangerous. Absolutely. You know,
2: at least mentors I've had in the past will challenge your thinking it's just like well why do you want to join the au what's Mm -hmm. what what are the Mm -hmm. motivations or like have you even come up with a counterpoint it's like no you've beaten me into submission we're going to hijack this plane now
0: (laughs) you made me feel bad about myself so which is not hard
1: womp womp Why do you think Amaro is so susceptible to Katz's criticism?
2: I mean, I think this comes from being like emotionally and actually isolated up in that cabin, not knowing he can trust anyone. So the first people that come in that he can trust again are like, these people that don't have any understanding of how he may or may not have changed in four years Mm -hmm. and probably the last thing they remember is like you saved us psychically from space and he's like yep yep and they're like I bet that had no negative impact on you let's go back (laughs) yeah they're the first positive people to come back into his life so that would be where he puts all his stock
1: because he doesn't have any like internal self-confidence Oh yeah, he needs it to come from other people, and these are people who he has a huge emotional investment in their opinion of him.
2: Oh yeah, all I have the moment he meets Bell Porchka is just uh, circled eight times. External sources of validation. Ah. (laughs) I bet when you look inside Amaro, it kind of just clinks around like a marble in a can. Oh, Oh. that's uh, that's how empty it is.
1: Speaking of external sources of. Uh, in this case not validation around the same time he meets Beltorchka he also meets Camille for the first time and Camille's initial interactions with Amuro are pretty hostile. I'm thinking of when Camille goes to Amuro and is like yo everybody tells me I'm like you that really sucks for me
2: I didn't pick that up as aggressive. That's that's like typical teenager
1: (laughs) yeah aggressive
2: (laughs) it's not (laughs) aggressive What's really interesting is that in this season, there's so much effort into animating body language. Mm. And if you watch when he's telling him that Amaro is just walking along, barely notices this kid. And this kid is walking behind him and following him. is just like, yeah, by the way, these people at Kimeki say, are you listening to me? Don't you, don't you hear how important I am? And he's like, uh-huh, I'm going to take off my jacket and hang it up over here. Oh, you're still here. Oh, hi. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, yes, Camille's trying to be hostile, but he's being very bad at it because he's not picking up on any cues where he's like, you don't matter, please go away. And because I think Amro knows what's going to happen next. Because he even says, it, he's like, yeah, you've heard about me from cats, haven't you? You know, I'm pretty cool. And that's all I'm <laughs> going to validate. He's like.
1: <laughs> so why is Amaro able to shrug off Camille's negative attitude about him?
2: Camille isn't a real person yet to him. Hmm. I think that he's spent enough time and put enough emotional stock into the people he's already seen. There's enough people on the Odumla, for it to feel enough like the white base. So he's like, his focus is like, I've got Hayato, and now Shars here, and then I've got Katz, and this is semi-familiar, because he's very army-oriented. He's like, I understand the things that are familiar, and now there's this thing yelling at me, and I don't have any template for this person. Where did you come from?
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so I don't think he's um, available yet to even accommodate space in his schema for where Camille would be. He's like, you are not a tiny yapping child, and you are not on the level of Char. I don't know where you fit yet. Okay. And also, there can only be one me, and you're claiming to be me, and I am me. <laughs> but yeah, so much body language in this one.
1: Could you expand a little bit on what you mean by so much body language?
2: Okay, yeah. I think someone asked what I think about the exposition for Amaro. And I think everything here that he says is going to be that same bankrupt individual where it's like, I'm going to answer shortly and without much depth. But what he's doing, what the creators are doing, is putting an effort to demonstrate the behaviors of someone who has some PTSD. And that's why I picked up on it. So you can tell someone is not ready to deal with you if they have like their arms crossed, any part of them crossed over the front. It's like a way to protect heart and soft underbelly. Uh, And you can see all of that. When Amaro is in the cockpit with Hayato, just like, hey, you're here and you are in charge of this base and you have comments and you got fra pregnant and I'm really not happy about any of this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to practice my soft underbelly. Um, so
1: <laughs> That's interesting because the things he says sound so friendly. <laughs> it's so good to see you again, old friend. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I definitely was not listening to that anymore. And I was like, because I don't believe it. I don't believe a single thing he's saying. He's like, hi, person. I see that you're here. I'm really mad about everything that's going on. Things have changed. I don't like them. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, like, so he has that stance with everyone. It's even a lazy like protection where it's like the one arm holding the the joint of the elbow thing walking around. Um, so like even some of that or like turning his front away from Camille. But the moment he sees Char, he's going to sit far away playing hard to get in this little bench. And then the moment he sees Char, his arms spread, his legs spread. He's like, I am ready for anything that you have to give me, Shar.
0: <laughs> I was like, whoa. And how fascinating that the person that he seems to trust the most is the person who was his rival. Not the person that he was on the same side with. Not the person who was ostensibly his friend.
2: <laughs> no, the person from way back when that was his only mentor through indirect means. Yeah. Mm. Not only emotionally safe, but practical.
1: I have to ask for clarification. <laughs> when you said that it was emotionally safe and practical, were you being sarcastic?
2: I I'm not being sarcastic at all, because the thing is, you have friends who have judgments about you, or like judgments about the decisions you make, or ultimately will judge the decisions you make in war. So he's like, ugh, Fra probably hates that I did X, Y, and Z, but she doesn't understand the context of war. Or Hayato, like, he was close, sir, but like clearly judges me now. Shar is the only one who knows that the decisions I made were hard and won't judge me but Mm. also he was close enough to have made judgments because they exchanged an emotional bond without words which is like every ptsd person's dream it's just like i don't have to talk (laughs) but you will get it (laughs) (laughs) and then he doesn't say anything we're like ah, yes we had this exchange but we're never going to acknowledge it neat perfect
1: in light of all of that i think it makes Shars Uh, comments to him in that scene so much more interesting because what Char says to him is I came here to laugh at you. Is that what you expect me to say? Or is that what you want me to say? Like, do you want me to judge you?
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly it. It's not even the fact that he's being judged. He's like, I want someone who can judge me who knows everything because that is the only one that will be valid and that is the only one that will be accurate. But I will only accept it if it is the feedback I want to hear.
1: But what is the feedback he wants to hear?
2: He doesn't know, because again, like I said, looks inside and it's an empty can with one little marble rolling around.
1: Maybe he does want Char to laugh at him.
2: Maybe he does. He won't know until someone does something, because everyone's on eggshells around him.
0: I also just wonder if he doesn't look at Char and see someone who has done the same things as him, someone who has done things just as bad as the things he's done.
2: It's true. And look at how much more functional he is as a person. I'm jealous. Tell me how you got there. Beat me into shapes. I can be like that. No, I think that's absolutely correct, Nina. That is the one person who has probably done worse things. And mm-hmm. everyone else in his life would be like, you've done the worst thing I've ever seen. And Shar's like, that's eh, it's
0: fine. I've killed four people today. And you're like, what? <laughs> they also both loved the same woman during the last war and she died trying to break up a fight between them so yet another way in which they have a connection
2: did they love her or did they love the idea of
0: her mostly the second one (laughs) I mean Char is a manipulator and was using her Mm -hmm. mostly Um, and then Amaro and her had one of those mental connection moments where I'm, I'm reminded of your comment you just made about like every person with PTSD's dream you will completely understand everything without me having to say a word is exactly what happened like the two of them share this moment of perfect understanding (laughs) and then she gets killed by him I mean he doesn't mean to kill her he's trying to kill Shar, but right
2: it's funny because it was explained to me but not so I I don't have the same emotional impact as when I would have seen it but I was like Mm -hmm. ah yes
1: Do you remember in the elevator scene in the episodes of Zeta you were watching?
2: Yeah, that's when they were talking about Lala.
1: There's that clip where Amuro, it looks like water is filling his face and like (laughs) completely surrounding him. Do you remember Uh, this?
2: Oh, was that kind of like an abstract cut?
1: Yeah. Okay. That was a clip from first Gundam. That's what it showed when he killed Lala.
0: Oh. Yeah, it was like he was being engulfed by waves. So if we
2: go back to my metaphor of like an empty can, that's the first time he felt filled.
0: Oh. Oh. (laughs) I just killed somebody who was the only person in the universe who completely understood me. Yep. This is the only time I have felt full of emotion. (laughs) Oh, yep.
1: Oh, he was so sad in space.
0: (laughs) Everyone's on Earth. They're still so
2: sad on Earth.
1: But on Earth, he's so empty, and in space, he was so sad.
2: How strange. This is one place where there's a vacuum. You'll feel one emotion. Hmm. He reminds me of, like, my typical battle-hardened individual. Anytime they're like, why do I feel? And I don't know how to feel. And I'm like, but you clearly feel. And he's like, yeah, but inside is empty. I'm like, that has another name. And we try and walk through that all the time.
1: And what is the name of that?
2: It depends, because everyone's subjective experience of an emotion is different. hmm So yes, I will link you the entirety of this book called The Neuropsychological Practice with Vets, because on top of all of this emotional emptiness, we have G-Lock, a G-Force-related loss of consciousness, and material ah. gas embolism, which can mimic a stroke. So I'm like, ah, maybe that washing of emotion was just a stroke. And I hear that all the time, too. That's actually mm. more preferable for some people. Like, I wish that this emotion was just a stroke. At least we'd know that's it's a real thing.
0: Right. Because it's like a, a medical, a physically understood.
2: Yeah. So we got real dark. Let's talk about Balthorchka, a comparator to Fra, right? Fra, who has this pattern of speaking highly of Amaro when he's not there and belittling him to his face. And Beltorchka, who will talk about him when he's gone and then kiss his face. <laughs>
0: <laughs> My main frustration with Beltorchka was that she doesn't seem to know what exactly it is she wants from Amaro, And so she's presenting him with impossible expectations. Like she wants him to be more... Forceful, more aggressive, and more um, ambitious, sort of, I guess, the vibe I get. (laughs) And yet she does not want him to go back to war, or at least not war in space.
1: Or she wants him to go to war, but to not be a warlike person.
0: (laughs) Or to go to war, but never be in danger. Like, and how do you think a person with with a
2: need for an external source of validation is going to handle these mixed messages?
1: Well, that's what you're here to tell us, doctor.
2: <laughs> I know. <laughs> you're absolutely right. The entire problem with her is, so the way that you can tell people might be more prone to personality disorders is that you feel uncomfortable in the room like you feel uncomfortable Mm. in the room where you've listened to people tell worse things but this person's telling you about getting coffee and you're like man i want to kill you she gives me that vibe where i'm like if i'm in a room with you too long i'm just gonna go for your neck um so i think that she's more of a personality disorder kind of person and you can already hear it where like there's kind of this black and white thinking she's like don't be in war Be a good person. But being a good person means that you have to be warlike, and you're like, no, I don't know what you want. The reason that this would be so appealing to people coming out of a war is that they, they do kind of mimic a personality disorder, but you don't feel that same, like, itch on your skin. It's just like you have learned that splitting black and white thinking has gotten you pretty far in life, whereas this person who experienced likely a trauma in their life, like she said, war orphan, formed their worldview too much, where the interpersonal part is ruined. And it's hard. It's hard because I know that there's an entire disparity for like women being targeted with personality disorders. And that's why I made this whole preface. I'm like, I'm not being misogynistic. It's just that she fits it. Whoever wrote this probably saw her as one of those people that they don't like. <laughs> so yes, she is presenting here with impossible things. But like I said, if the only thing that has ever touched Amuro tenderly is the Mark II and we have her, he's going to form odd attachments to her. And be over the moon. That it's like human people are capable of being physically tender. I didn't know they could do that.
1: Well, and we know that he had a crush on Sela. Frabo tells us that uh, at the beginning of one of these episodes. And not for nothing, Beltorchka looks a lot like Sela.
2: So this is going to go back to an old school of thought called object relations. How to put this without getting incredibly Freudian. Um yeah. <laughs> So, in our lives, we have templates for people, you know, people that are close relationships with us. Object relations is that um, our caregivers in life give us the templates about how to interact with caregivers.
1: So, for Amaro, that would be like uh, abandonment, neglect, and robots. Yes. Only robots offer you comfort and security. Yes. Whereas, uh, father figures will neglect you and mother figures will abandon you.
2: Ah, yes. I said, Beltorchka, surely this isn't putting a band-aid on the stab wound of your mother, shipping you to another planet. If we go back to the mentoring piece where he's trying to fill the space that his father didn't give him, we got this where it's like another female figure for the validation I never got from my mother. Mm. The effectiveness of being with Beltorchka is like the effect that cocaine has on productivity. It's great until it's not. (laughs) Yeah. So I expect the moments after he ever sleeps with Bill Torchka, he feels good for all of like five seconds. Then she's probably like all hopped up on honesty. And it's like, by the way, you should be a better person. But let me give you the abstracts of how to be a better person and no actual advice.
1: So you're saying that his relationship with Bill Torchka will initially seem like it's stabilizing him and making him more able to be part of the world and then He's just going to crater.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's going to be a bad. It's going to be harder than when he gets kicked out of war. Does he crash his ship afterwards? Does he do something terrible?
1: Well, in the, say, four episodes after this one, um, he does get increasingly reckless and Mm -hmm. um, continuously risks his own life in increasingly dangerous ways. And the last we see of him, his mobile suit is getting uh, blown up a little bit.
2: Blown up a little bit? Yes. How does one blow up just a little
0: bit? <laughs> well, he winds up surviving it and being, uh, I mean, in bed with some considerable injuries.
1: And Beltorchka tending to him.
0: Oh, God.
1: He crashes his mobile suit into uh, an enemy ship and then... The enemy ship explodes and his mobile suit gets like thrown away by the explosion and the arm explodes and it's quite badly damaged.
0: And he does all of this to help Camille get back to space.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And what type of mobile suit, as in where's the cockpit when all of this happens? It's in the head. Well, nope, not better.
1: Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up because... When Amaro takes on the mentor, father figure kind of role, first for Cats and then for Camille, Camille in the episodes you haven't seen yet, um, he's in the Rick Diaz the whole time.
2: I was going to guess that.
1: And the Rick Diaz we have seen in previous episodes principally is operated by older male characters who act as father figures for the protagonist. Quatro, Camille's dad...
2: No, not even that. The Rick Diaz was the target of desire for Camille's dad. So it's like your stepmom coming to save you if Amaro's in the Rick Diaz.
1: Hmm.
0: Sketch.
2: <laughs> it's like, oh, hey. And I'm sure that Camille feels awkward about being saved by the Rick Diaz.
1: It does uh, cause some conflict. Yeah. Oh,
2: does it? Like how?
1: <laughs> so... After the episodes you watched, they end up in Hong Kong, still trying to get Camille back into space. Um, while they're there, Camille encounters a young, new type woman around his age who is working for the Titans. He doesn't know that initially. Is it the
0: purple haired lady? Green hair.
1: Yeah, different one. Same kind of person, different person. And they form a uh, somewhat romantic teenage sort of uh, crush kind of relationship. Um, but she's also a pilot and they keep not knowing it, fighting each other in their mobile suits. But Camille is like very intent on not killing this person, but also getting them out of Hong Kong so that they stop causing collateral damage. Uh, and Amuro keeps flying in and trying to kill the enemy pilot and having no problem fighting in the middle of Hong Kong. And Camille is like, no, don't do it. Really? Yes.
2: We see Camille exercise restraint? I'm surprised. This is also a period
1: when Amaro and Beltorchka's relationship seems to be undergoing some strain. Wow. And Amaro seems kind of depressed.
2: <sighs> cool. Great. That's fantastic. I'm just gonna get- throw things! <laughs>
1: Do you find that to be consistent with your evaluation of yes. him across these four, <laughs> four episodes?
2: With Amaro, yes. With Camille, I'm actually shocked that he's, like, exercising restraint, but...
1: Camille is a good boy, and he is growing as a person. <laughs> so... <laughs>
2: I'm surprised that he cares about the collateral damage. I'm not surprised that he's trying to protect whoever he's trying to bang.
0: So this is sort of out of left field, but I find it very interesting and it keeps coming up. But when I talk to men about Zeta, a lot of them feel a strong like personal relation or affinity to Camille. There's a strong sense of identifying with Camille, um, in, in people's like memory of being a teenage boy. Ah most of the women i talk to universally are like oh he's such a pain (laughs) we do not like him whereas the men are like he's young and he's trying to be better
2: (laughs) i like it i'm sorry it's just too funny (laughs) I was like, I'm surprised that they don't even say, like, how dare they have women in the piloting seat now. Blah!
1: Camille, later on, is going to go into the hangar, and he's going to see a bunch of women pilots, and he is going to say something like, gosh, there are a lot of women here. That's weird.
0: And war is supposed to be men's stuff, basically. Oh, God.
2: <laughs> um, <laughs> I just... I, I, uh, I just can't get over it because I was like, there are moments when Camille's just demonstrating all these behaviors of like, gee, golly, I sure have emotions and I'd like for them to go somewhere. (laughs) And it comes out strange. (laughs) I'm gonna punch someone.
1: Do you think it's coming out strange because all of his role models and examples, like everyone around him are these completely emotionally stunted, empty inside, like war veterans and his abusive dirtbag dad?
2: I mean, it's even weird for that. There's not a point where in a structured place that I've ever heard of a subordinate punching someone they admired. And from what I can tell, he does admire Quattro. Yeah. So I was like, where the did that haymaker come from? What is wrong with you? And, And I hear all the time, if we were alone in a bar and there'd be no repercussions, I'd punch my superior. I'm like. To actually do it? Wow. Wow. That is just... You sure are 14.
1: He's 17.
2: Oh, my God. Anyway,
0: <laughs> I do want to point out, because I, I find that punch very interesting, too, to give you a little more context from the show. What's happened is that um, Quattro is actually Char. Because of his background, a lot of people think he ought to take more of a leadership role than he does and take on more responsibility than he seems to have. And he is very resistant to that. He doesn't seem to want it. Oh, so he's like straight up Amaro Light. Yes. And Camille is being constantly berated for not behaving responsible enough or adult enough. In his current position as a pilot, he got beaten up just for being late to a meeting.
1: And he's been like slapped and punched for other offenses of the nature of not being responsible enough.
0: So when he finds out Quattro's true identity and that Quattro is resisting taking on these responsibilities, the unfairness of that is a big part of what drives him to punch so is that like the first time he learned?
1: He's suspected this for a while, but this is the time when Quattro like very explicitly refuses to take on this responsibility. Huh. And all that Camille has learned is that when people refuse responsibility, you punch them.
2: <laughs> He's been classically conditioned. Good job. Um, I think that feeling of being trapped, that feeling of that, Uh, toxic masculine know that you have responsibility but I'm going to be abstract in explaining what it is or how to do it is probably what people really relate to a lot when they Mm. see Camille so I think that's what you're getting is just uh, I remember growing up as a kid or at least for the generation before us just like I remember when I was growing up, I was supposed to be the man of the house, but I'm like, and then I deconstructed that with so many people. I'm like, but what does that mean? Mm -hmm. If the man of the house is there, what are the tasks delegated to you? And then everyone's like, I I don't know. Like, it's just be a man. I'm like, and what does that mean? (laughs) So it's kind of this deconstructing of like, this kid finally like fighting back against that super weird abstraction mm-hmm. that's thrust upon everyone that they probably relate to so much and then he has those flashes of good where it's like don't kill the civilians or i had a fleeting moment of self-preservation thinking about fa in the falling gundam so i was like okay you got some pieces of good humanity but they're like buried under literally you beating them down and you being beaten down
1: well i think part of the reason he's he's made so uncomfortable by the idea of women on the battlefield women in the military is because everyone is telling him be a man be a man be a man but he doesn't know what it means to be a man and the only the only thing he thinks of as a way to prove his masculinity is the army fighting the battlefield the war and so to have women on the battlefield is like, wait, no, hold on. This is man stuff. This is how I prove I'm a man. If there are women here, then what is this? Then it's not man stuff anymore.
2: Where do I fit? I have no place to go. Yeah, that's probably more of a panic than misogyny. I mean, well, misogyny is kind of this externalized panic because looking inside feels like that empty can with a rolling marble in it, but yeah.
0: Like staring into the abyss. Yep. That's my favorite metaphor of the day.
2: <laughs> I have used, I've used it too much this week.
1: But the abyss is me.
2: I know. This tiny marble is me. What do I do? That makes sense when people would feel super related to him and probably starting to distance themselves from Amaro.
1: Now that we are back on Amuro, towards the end of these episodes, he does get back in the mobile suit and he goes back into combat. Yes. He has some difficulties. The first time he tries to do this, he panics. The colors of the animation get all weird and he's like pounding against the wall. He's terrified.
2: In that moment when he panics, um, that's the one time the writing was good. (laughs) He says, I used to be a pilot and then cracks. But it's so fascinating because I'm like, the doubt is so automatic. Y'all know I do dementia work now. I deal with people who are like 70 and above, clearly retired, haven't touched a car in ages, but they're like, I am a trucker. But the fact that he's like, I used to be a pilot, he does not believe it anymore. In his core, the automatic thought, I do not believe I am a pilot. And that's, to verbalize that, is probably what triggered this whole panic attack. Ah. That's a good capture of that panic. Like, I don't even believe myself, crack.
1: And there's a callback there to when we first see Amaro in these episodes, he's piloting the little plane, the little like single person plane that he parks uh, at his mansion. But you can see if you watch him, he's visibly uncomfortable flying it. He's like pouring sweat. He has to like loosen his collar at one point.
2: No, that makes sense. I like the idea of piloting, so I will teach people how to pilot. But I myself do not like being a pilot or acting out piloting. I'm sure if I gave him like, you know, one of those um, baby steering wheel toys with little bells on it, he'd still freak out. That's too abstract. I'm sorry.
1: No, I I can imagine it. It's just I couldn't (laughs) I couldn't think of anything funny to say in response to it because the the image of it is both really funny, but also really horrifying.
2: Ding, ding, freak out.
1: Yeah. But then he does get back into the mobile suit. He gets into it when he's trying to take cats down to the the rocket.
2: Because that means he'll go to space and be just like him. I must preserve my progeny.
1: I must entrust my progeny to the care of Quattro, to his other dad.
2: Yeah, but I gave him my gun. It'll be fine. So yes, you know, the extent that people will go to preserve their legacy... Even though he's like, I'm going to bring you down there. Even though we crash and burn, you don't have a seatbelt. It's fine. You'll be just like me. So he brings him down there to the base and entrusts him to the one, the one mentor that did him any good and the one person that understands him at a level that no one else will understand him. I'm pretty sure they're just married at this point. <laughs> <laughs> it's just trading custodies like insta-dads and now we're going to change
0: children. I saw... A quote recently from the creator that he wants people to wonder about the nature of that relationship. Like he's very happy for that layer to exist in the show. That's funny.
1: <laughs> well, and you saw that reunion between Amaro and Shar, um, where the the Mark II is kind of like beckoning to Amaro,
2: gently cradling him.
1: Yes, but also Quattro is there. And the lighting is all golden and they're just staring at each other.
2: What did I write? This framed exchange, scene fighting, Amaro in the hands of the Mark II and Shard at a distance. That's what I wrote. So beautiful. Because he's not able to touch him. I yearn for our wonderful whole connection again. But I've put so many boundaries between us.
1: Hmm.
0: This is just marriage, guys! <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: uh, <laughs> Latest Mobile Suit Breakdown hot take. Amro and Char are married.
1: <laughs> yes. That's just psychology. We don't make the rules.
2: <laughs> put a little bow tie in the Rick Diaz and put the Mark II in a veil. We're good.
1: <laughs> so once he's back, once he's in the Rick Diaz and he's flying through the clouds, killing enemies, Amro's confidence seems to come back a bit.
2: I don't remember. Does he start counting again?
1: He doesn't.
2: That's when we'll know that he's totally okay in a suit again. He's just straight up counting the dead bodies that he's throwing on the floor. (sighs) Does that happen?
1: Not yet. (laughs) Do you think this is a positive development for him?
2: It sure is a development. (laughs) a development you told me to picture him he's like comes back like four years later he's like by the way i sure feel empty inside i'll be like well let's explore that
1: comes back for the next session and he's like doctor i feel i feel so much better i've started killing again
2: yes that would be what i picture i'd be like ah time for you to leave
1: <laughs> don't worry they were enemy soldiers it's very good and moral what i'm doing
2: well let's review what your goals were that's how I'm picturing it. If you if you're saying that's a development, I'll be like, mm, I'm gonna need so many more disposable tables in my office just to be like, great. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. So you clutter up again. See you next week.
0: Did you have any observations? That we didn't talk about that you want to be sure you share with us? Um, I was going to talk about
2: how, because um, you know, I'm like Cox is 14, right?
1: Yeah, 14 or 15. 14
2: or 15. The one good thing about starting them so young is that your mind still has the mental flexibility to accommodate all this information so it can do it abstractly. And that's why we say learning languages so young uh, is really helpful because you kind of have that abstract piece. So I'd be interested to see where everyone's skill level is at age 35, because mathematicians peak at age 35. Mm. Yeah, there was actually a paper on this where like all the great people's discoveries just stop at age 35 in math.
1: Hmm.
2: That might be something that happens. Charles, how old?
1: Charles, 27.
2: Mm. So he's reaching past his peak, and I wonder what's going to happen. I'm sure that we won't find out until later seasons because people age like molasses here, but that's fine.
1: Uh, You did want to talk about G-Lock. You mentioned it, but I think you wanted to talk a little bit more about it.
2: Yeah. So the effects of G-Force on the body, because I am a neuropsychologist and I'm going to have a bit every time you bring me on about the difference between neuropsychology and general psychology. Um, So I will look at direct connections between the concrete brain and the abstract brain. So...
1: By which you mean the, like, fleshy bits versus the, like, thinky bits?
2: Yes. Squishy bits. Um, so G-force on the body means that you'll experience gravity-induced loss of consciousness. That's the G-lock. We get that because our heart rate is trying to get blood to the brain faster, so your heart rate will go up. But if the momentary shift in gravity... your heart is overcompensated and you're you've regulated too quickly. So that's where those gray outs will come. So I imagine Mm
1: -hmm. we did a little bit of research on that in season one, because that happened to Amuro twice.
2: What? Ah, anyway, it's not great for your squishy brain. It really isn't generally not good, just bad. So, uh, depending on where it happens, wherever the loss of blood flow happens, you'll have the associated uh, behaviors, but for a growing individual, it's likely to happen in the prefrontal cortex, the front thinking bits. And now we've got Amuro.
1: And uh, what what do those do?
2: They help you reason and manage your impulse control. The things that Amuro doesn't have.
1: And so do you think there's likely to be some long-term consequences?
2: What makes you say that? And I think that's just how he is going to be forever. It's like, ah, the skills that I used to deal with my emotions as a child was to kill things and then try to passively kill myself. The last thing for the brain would be like that same decompression sickness that cybers get, but it can happen the opposite way because atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So that would mimic a stroke.
1: Which could also cause damage to the brain.
2: And lasting effects. But it's harder to catch because it's arterial gas. I think it's nitrogen gas. And then you reabsorb Mm -hmm. it. You'll have what looks like a stroke, but I won't be able to detect it on MRI because your body reabsorbed the gas. So you'll just be broken. So if that's the baseline for everyone's brains here, especially after the three episodes that I saw when they're fighting on Earth with all this G-Force and G-Lock, I'm sure there are many more when they're fighting in various states of gravity. We are dealing with a brain the whole time. Yay.
1: The long-term effects of this kind of brain damage would be problems with inhibitions, problems reasoning.
2: Reasoning, problems with making tactical decisions, problems with planning, and problems with emotions.
1: Emotional regulation.
2: Yes, emotion regulation, uh, perpetual outbursts, also, I'm looking for a rare disorder that I feel that might show up in, uh, in Gundam. So there's a disorder that I encountered in life called Kluberbussi syndrome, and it's when a person doesn't recognize that someone is ready to fight them. Mm. Mm. I feel like that shows up more often in the military or with these people with <laughs> brains. That's my diagnosis. So if you see anyone that is like that, I'll be so happy.
1: Unable to recognize when an enemy is an enemy. Yeah.
2: We, we assess for like, do you get in fights a lot? And they're like, I, I guess. I mean, they're always coming at me, man. And so like, they don't understand what would make someone mad. So like, some people will take other people's belongings and be like, what's the problem? And I'm, I'm picturing that happening with someone. Interesting. I don't know who. But I was like, with all these people trying to colonize things and people that like fighting, I'm sure this would go under the radar. That's my homework for everyone out there. Find me someone with Kluber-Bussi syndrome and you'll have a citation for that.
1: All right. Well, we'll keep our eyes out and we'll ask our listeners to do the same.
2: Yay.
1: And we are very grateful you were able to come on and join us for this again. And we'll hopefully have you back soon.
2: Yes, soon.
1: There are so many people to analyze.
2: There are so many sad people in space. Thank you
0: so much for having me. It's always nice to be here. I wish I had more time to do this. Thank you for making the time for us. I know you're crunched, but we love getting to chat with you. Next time on episode 2.31, Nothing New Under the Sun, we cover Molesuit Zeta Gundam episode 30 and Quattro's a Monster. A woman's place is in the cockpit. Lala's version was better. How is this Faw's fault? I knew it! Fleet tactics in Gundam? Jared and Camille make the beams touch, again. Cherry blossom metaphor. Space is just chock-a-block full of ghosts. And, (laughs) uh, did Jared just have a stroke? You will see the tears of time.
1: Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and like us at facebook.com slash gundampodcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, gundampodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or just shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, The time has come for Zeta Gundam to be remade with modern, state of the art computer animation to correct embarrassing mistakes like Dangar. On any busy street corner, we will totally hear you. Voice acting for The Man in the Demon-Faced Castle was performed by members of the Mobile Suit Breakdown Patrons Discord. Thank you Renato, Megan, Amac, Mike, Thomas, Alan, Rose, Sal, Devin, Gus, Ryan, Holly, Tanner, Storm, Edward, another Edward, and Ellie. You can find Dr. Shaw at Dr. Sharmander Gaming on YouTube, where she makes Let's Plays and discusses the psychology of characters in games like Catherine, Dream Daddy, and Eliza. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, and the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. The music used for The Man in the Demon-Faced Castle was Augmentations by Kai Engel. I'm sorry, with that, that breach Doctor fictional character confidentiality? I was going to say... The experience of having to uh, analyze these people based on seeing only very small fragments of their lives must be very weird, but then I was like, no, that's what you do all the time as a therapist.
0: He's nice to robots.
1: They're not cold and unfeeling if you project emotions onto them.
2: Oh, sweet Jesus. Mom-bots, dad-bots.
1: Friend-bots.
2: How <laughs> robot. You cut out. I can't hear you.
1: Sorry. Can you hear me now?
2: I can't hear anyone now. Uh oh. Hello. I can't hear you. I'm sure that was obvious.
1: Uh. Um.
2: Your thing is lighting up, but I can't hear you. God. Also, I love it. So here's the funny thing that I have. Oh wait, turning a page. I should do this.
0: A little misogynistic. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and now that I'm leaning forward, I realize I've been sitting far away from the mic, and I'm sorry. Um,
1: but we nice just, calling me we out, that.
2: So, where am I next? Paper, 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 paper. Um, oh, no. Wait, maybe. Yes. Okay. Yes. I... Skinner! <laughs> I had Skinner's chauffeur as one of my professors and man the stories I have about Skinner. So many tangents in history of psychology <laughs> about how much Skinner hated people and actually trained a to march in front of his lab to keep people from bringing in the meetings. Anyway, psychology rant's done! I got an article accepted that I didn't want it to be and now I'm tired I shouldn't say that that's super gross no but do you think it's true I do um, what other orphans do we know
1: all of them Let's not, at this late stage, (laughs) start to retroactively analyze what I should or shouldn't have done at any particular time in the past. I just don't think it's productive. I think we need to focus on moving forward as a podcast and as a nation.